would be cool. Uh, my name is Derek, campus pastor for RUF, and uh, really thankful for you showing up as uh, we started a new semester. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been able to do this here, and that means I forgot how hot this room is. So uh, next week I need someone to come with a solution. I don't care what that solution is. You can remove cinder blocks. You can bring a fan. It doesn't matter to me at all. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm a pastor here on campus. I've been here since 2008, and uh, along with pastoring the group, along with Callie, uh, part of my job is to take God's Word and make it clear. Uh, make it clear for those that want to grow in their faith. Make it clear to those who think it's a bunch of gibberish and doesn't mean anything. Uh, in RUF, we want to do both for all kinds of people. And our ultimate goal is that people would understand uh, the love of Jesus, come to rest in it, and be changed by it. And, uh, and to that end, we teach through the Bible. This semester, it's the book of Ephesians. And uh, last week, we started a series that I am calling, uh, what am I calling it? More Than We Can Imagine. And uh, some of you, you're, you're brand new, so you don't really know this about me or RUF. We're a little understated, like, we're going to have fun, but, like, it's not going to be a party in here. We're going to have a party out there. We'll have dance parties. We'll goof off. We'll have competition. Everything's a competition. I want to win. But, like, I scarcely ever overstate or oversell things. That's just not the way I'm wired. So you may hear a title, like, more than we can imagine and think, like, that's a little out of character for you. You're, like, you're like overselling this. Like, are you excited about something? And the answer is no, probably not. Um, no, actually, this is Paul's language here in the book for what he's describing in the person of Jesus. And actually, his excitement uh, for the good news of Jesus is such. In the first chapter, we started last week, he begins a sentence in verse 3 and ends it in verse 14. And it's not because he's a bad writer. He's actually a great writer and a very smart man. No, what happens is he begins to understand and explain to us the goodness of God's love in the person of Jesus. It's a river of truth and grace, and there's no good place to cut it off. It is just sort of a symphony of love and truth pouring out of him as he explains what this means for us. And so uh, within this series, I'm sort of doing a little mini-series that I'm calling The New You. How do we begin to be the kind of people that we want to be, that God wants us to be? We come back to school, or we come to school thinking about the kind of people we want to be. Last week we saw how that starts with the love of Jesus. We'll continue that this week. I'm going to be reading Ephesians chapter 1, 7 to 14. It should be up there. Also, I try to make little notes. If you're a note taker, there's outlines on the sides. And uh, ah, feel free to follow along as I read. Ephesians 1, 7 to 14. Starting in the middle of a verse almost. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of His glory. All right. I don't believe we can understand this on our own. I'm going to pray for help. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we ask you be kind to show us wonderful things in your word. Be kind to show us Jesus and his love. Press it deep into our hearts. Change us by it, we ask. For your glory, for the good of others. Amen. All right. Um, Some of you have already heard this. I I like music um, and I like strange, fun, sad, truthful music. And I discovered this recently. It's a song by uh, Marina and the Diamonds. Anyone have heard of Marina and the Diamonds? There you go. It's a Welsh rock group, um, electric rock group. And on the song called Fear and Loathing, um, it's a really happy song, uh, Marina uh, writes and sings this. Listen to these lyrics. I lived a lot of different lives, been different people many times. I lived my life in bitterness, filled my heart with emptiness. Don't want to live in fear and loathing. I want to feel like I am floating instead of constantly exploding in fear and loathing. I love this line. Got different people inside my head. I wonder which one they like best. I'm done with trying to have it all and ending up with not much at all. I mean, I love her honesty as she talks about something that we all struggle with at some time or other, and that is insecurity. Almost no one likes to admit they're insecure, but she's talking about insecurity and its, and its effects in her life that she has many people inside of her head and she rolls them out to try to please people, wondering which one they'll like best. You may not know it, but here at Pitt, you are in an insecurity laboratory, breeding ground, zoo, name it, it's here. Like, if you already have it, it's a great place to grow more insecurity. If you're interested in just observing it, it's everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, characterized by trying to fit in, not getting left behind. Some people pursue this through achievement. Some people pursue this through social acceptance or affection. The goal is always the same. It is to get in or get enough where we're sure at some point that the bottom won't fall out, that we matter, that we're good, that we're safe. What you also notice if you keep your eyes open, your ears open, look, is insecurity, I mean, it's really problematic for lots of reasons. For one, insecurity makes you, I'm going to be perhaps slightly offensive here, insecurity makes you stupid. I mean, insecurity short circuits like your logic. Insecurity makes you do things that you said you would never do. Makes you try things you've never done before in your life. It makes you trust people you've never trusted and try things you would say you would never do before, all just to fit in or make an impression. Sometimes on a whim. And that's how you get hurt. Happens all the time. And if Marina's right, and she is, Insecurity also makes you sad because it doesn't work. Like she sings, in the end, you end up with not much at all. So often, all our striving, achieving, seeking approval, trying to get security in these ways, it's like building a sandcastle at the ocean. You work really hard, 
but the thing you're building with and the environment you're building with, it all crumbles. I mean, the world's a mess. The school's a mess. Your friendships are a mess. Your family's a mess. And you're a mess. I mean, you, you can't exactly expect any of those things to be perfect and last forever. And we're expecting that when we look for security. We really are. So we're often trying to desperately grasp for something to establish our security, the sense of belonging, the bottom's not going to fall out, I'm okay. And it doesn't deliver. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is you don't have to live that way. There's a new life, a new way to live in the secure love of Jesus. We're going to talk about the secure love of Jesus tonight and then how we have in him the possibility of redemption. Uh, I like to alliterate, but I didn't do it thoroughly. Yeah, I did. I did. Never mind. I thought maybe I didn't do it, but I did. Even when I don't try to do it, it's like a superpower. Uh, the possibility of redemption, the perspective of a grand plan, and the promise of a glorious inheritance. So let's talk about redemption real quick. I, I think the way this word is used in our common culture is hilarious and tragic. Um, I'm a huge sports fan, so this word gets trotted out every time somebody has a bad series or a bad Olympics and they're going to go and redeem themselves. And I understand they've lived with that failure and pain for a while. But that's not what the word redemption means. Um, Another example, I'm sure you'll all remember this. Mad Max, the movie, Fury Road, where uh, he chases uh, Furiosa down. Y'all remember this part, right? No, you're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, they decide to hatch a plan to go back to the green place. And he utters, you know, he only says like seven words in the whole movie. But his selling point to her, why we should do this plan is, and he mumbles because that's what he does as an actor, um, is perhaps we can find some kind of redemption. The idea of redemption in our culture is something that we do, something we achieve, something we work on our own efforts. And that is not the Bible's definition of redemption at all. Uh, what we see in verse 7 and 8 is uh, redemption is through Jesus. Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, it is not performing perfectly, making up for every mistake. It is having our every mistake covered by someone else. Uh, the picture of redemption in the Bible is that we have a debt to pay. The word redemption is an economic term. We have an infinite debt that we could never pay. And uh, someone else has picked up the tab. And it costs them everything. Uh, sometimes we think of this as uh, forgiveness as sort of like it's been forgotten. Like you've done something terrible and you just hope no one ever finds out. And the further you get away from that, like hey, it's been years no one will ever find out. Maybe we'll just be buried forever and forgotten. That's the best you can hope for. That is not the best the Bible hopes for. The Bible tells us our sins and failures are not just forgotten. They are forever forgiven. They are covered. They are blotted out. They are buried in Jesus. They are covered. And this is very costly. It costs us nothing. It costs Jesus' life. We are covered, redeemed through his blood. Um, you know, sometimes people will ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? And the answer is he didn't have to. He could have chosen not to. He could have just left us in our plight. Um, but I 
So I, I think the better way to ask the question is, why did Jesus have to die? Why him and not just someone else? Why not just some other chump? Um, and it's because no one else had the credit. No one else had the righteousness. No one else had all the goodness necessary to cover all our need. He had it in abundance. And also because no one else was willing to. Uh, no one else is willing to give up their life for a bunch of selfish people. But Jesus loved us that much. And he gave himself up to redeem us, to forgive us. We don't redeem ourselves. Now, I have a story here, and it's like the, the simplest, silly little story ever. But it makes the point. So uh, the small child was playing with a boat that he had made, and it floated down the river. Uh, I'll make it more realistic for our, our modern story. There's a huge storm in Oakland, and water was running through the streets, and he lost it in a, in a, in a flash flood down the street. And uh, a few days later, he sees it in the window of a store and he goes in and talks to the store owner and says, that's my boat. And the store owner is very kind and says, I'm sorry, son, but someone else sold that to me. It's going to cost you. And he goes out, he works hard. He saves his money. He comes back and he buys the boat. And as he leaves, instead of being bitter that he had to buy it, he is holding it tenderly and saying, you are twice mine. I made you. And now I bought you back. That's a picture of redemption. Okay, and here's the deal. You are not the boy. Okay, you and me, we're the boat. We're the boat. We've been created and we've wandered off. And because he loves us greatly, Jesus pursued us and bought us back and delights to bring us close. There is comfort in this, friends. We, we, sort of ache in our culture for the possibility of redemption, that we can prove ourselves. And you're free to do that in all kinds of ways, athletically, academically. Go prove yourself. That's fine. But as far as true redemption is concerned, there's something else on the table. You can find comfort in the fact that someone else has already done everything that needs to be done for you to be forgiven and made right. And you can find great comfort in that. You can rest in that. So I would encourage you, stop trying. Stop trying to redeem yourself. You can't do it. Make yourself miserable. Rest in what Jesus has already accomplished for you. And find security in the fact that you've been forgiven because he loves you. All right, let's talk about the future real quick. There's so much going on in this text. If I, as I read Ephesians 1, 7-14, you find yourself like swimming. Like, what in the world is he talking about? That's because he's like talking about everything at once. He really is. Like, this is the thickest stake. This is the biggest boat. This is the grandest thing. He stuffed it all together. It is heavy and good. And unpacking it is what I'm trying to do. Uh, not only do we have his love, but we also have a glimpse of his plan. There's a grand plan here. That's alluded to that, that God has redeemed us because of a plan out of his love. And we're given here knowledge of that plan. And now what we have here in this plan is not like the intricate blueprint. We don't have that. We have it elsewhere in the Bible. What, what Paul gives us here is actually something like not the 10,000 foot view, not the cathedral of learning view, 
This is more like the one million mile up view. Like he takes us straight out of creation and he goes to the beginning of time, verse four, before the foundations of the earth, before time began. And then in verse 11, he takes us to the other end of time and says, until the very end when he wraps everything up. And what Paul is saying is there is a grand plan that God has that goes from beginning to end. And it's not just him making it up as he goes. Uh, there's a family that's been a part of our group over the years, and uh, they're a great family. And for the first time in like 12 or 13 years, there's none of them here. I've got to fix that. But uh, uh, one of the things they ask their kids to do at a certain age is to make a timeline of their life in detail. And so they do, and it like wraps around the room, okay? And, uh, and it's probably because they want their kids to see and own with gratitude and sadness, all the highs and lows. That's part of being a healthy human, right? Uh, and here God is laying out, but not in very much detail, the entire timeline for us to see. And what he wants us to see is there is a very good, grand plan for it all. He's not making it up as he goes. And the general scope of the plan, the direction of the plan, the arc of the story is we move from ruined to restored, from fractured to united. He talks about... Everything being united in Christ at the end. And the picture of the Bible starting in the very early chapters of Genesis is fracture. It's brokenness. Like this is what we know in our lives, this is what we know in our families, this is what we know we turn on the news for five seconds. Things fall apart. Things are fractured. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. The Bible has an explanation for that. By nature, we're selfish. We're proud. We don't admit we're wrong very often. And so things are strained. And the picture of the Bible is we move from fractured and ruined to restored and brought back together through the person of Jesus. This is what he came to do, to restore us as individuals and to work in us in such a way that we begin to restore everything else. It's a beautiful plan, and we have it slowly unfolding uh, in, in the scriptures. And lastly, we see in this whole section here that this is not something that's easily done. This is the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So as if there's not enough going on, Paul makes sure to mention the roles of each member of the Trinity here. The Father's at work in verses 3 to 6, Jesus in 7 to 12, Holy Spirit in 13 to 14. What you have then is the whole scope of history laid out in front of us. The whole scope of the plan, the goodness of the plan with Father, Son, and Spirit all working to bring things from broken to beautiful. And it's really important for us to hear this because I am convinced that... Uh, we can grow super myopic. You know, it all becomes about my story. Like, what's going on with me? My story. How are things going to work out? What am I supposed to do? When am I going to do it? When's this going to work out for me? And, you know, part of that's necessary. You've got to figure out what you're supposed to study and when you're going to get a job. And I get all that. But uh, if we don't have a big plan in mind, then a couple things can happen. One, we can grow really cynical that there is a story. That happens in college all the time. Um, there is no story. There is nothing to understand. There is no truth. So, yeah, why even look for it? Why even try? So, story of lots of people, spiritually, somewhat even ethically in colleges, apathy. They're pretty convinced there is nothing to understand or plan, so they don't pursue it. They don't look for it. Surprising, they don't find it. But any of us, all of us, can get so wrapped up in my story 
that we drown in it. We drown in the details. Everything becomes extremely important. We're freaking out over all kinds of things. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. And I want to know your story. We want to know your story and be a part of it. But it, it helps you to know that your story is part of a bigger plan. It's a big, beautiful plan. God's in charge. This thing's going somewhere. It's grand. It's good. He's restoring all things. It puts your life and your struggles and where you're going in perspective. In perspective is great. You know where you are. You know what's happening. This lends uh, direction, meaning, purpose, even freedom to you in your story. And that is security. Security, knowing that this thing is going somewhere. Someone's driving the ship. This thing is actually going somewhere. The security, knowing that we're forgiven, and that someone's driving this thing, and it's going somewhere good. Lastly, a glorious inheritance. Now, you may hear the word inheritance and immediately think, old people, dead, boring. And I would challenge that by simply saying, you should go watch the movie Knives Out. Dude, movie's dope and far from boring. Um... So, uh, but anyway, you should hear the word inheritance and think life-changing promise. That's what you should think. Um, it's possible that you're like me and you're inheritance and you think, like, that's not my story. Like, there's no such thing. <laughs> or like me, like, the only thing I'm going to inherit is debt. Um, but Paul here tells us that if you're in Jesus, you've been promised glory. There's the promise of glory in Jesus Verse 11 and 12, you have obtained an inheritance. Like I can honestly tell all of you, having done this for 12 years, I do not know what will happen to you in the next four years. I don't know if you're going to graduate. You probably will. I don't know who you're going to marry or if you will. You probably will. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I, I didn't know I was going to end up in Pittsburgh. I didn't even know what Pittsburgh was. I didn't know what blasted... I didn't know a blasted, not one thing about Pittsburgh. And I've been here for 13 years now. You just don't know. You can know for sure there's an inheritance of glory waiting for you. That's beautiful. That's good. And, and Paul uh, writes here, not only has that promise been made, but, but we can wait for it. Verse 14, we can expect it until we acquire it. Jesus will finish what he started. He made that promise. He's going to bring it to fruition. He's going to give us what he promised. That there will be a time. This is the promise of glory. You're like, what is that? There'll be a time when everything's the way it's supposed to be. Including you. Things restored. Things put right. Broken parts of you made right. Beautiful relationships enjoyed. That is the promise of glory. He also guarantees it. And some of you should be asking, any pre-legal folks, well, what's the difference between like a promise and a guarantee? I don't know. Um, but, but Paul here is making a point of the guarantee. He's promised it, but he's also like sealed it, stamped it, marked you with it. He uses the word sealed here, meaning you've been marked. If you're in Jesus, you've been marked for glory. And uh, you're like, where's the mark? <laughs> Got a birthmark right there. You didn't know that? Uh, no, it's actually inside you. You've been marked inside you. And uh, the first thing I thought of was uh, the first Harry Potter book when it's clear at the end of the book that Harry has been marked. He's been marked by what? By his mother's love. Remember that? Like, it's beautiful. You can't see it. No one can see it. But he is 
demonstrably a different kind of human being because he'd been marked by it. And if we're in Jesus, we've been marked uh, by God. And specifically, we've been marked, it tells us, by the Holy Spirit. And that fact that he's residing in us, even when we don't feel it, is not just a mark, it's a guarantee. That's this, the language of Paul here. It's a guarantee that heaven, in some ways, has been dropped into you here and now, and the Holy Spirit will bring you where you belong in the end. So if you're, in a, if you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, you've rested in him, even when you're struggling with insecurity, even when you don't know where you belong, even if you can't figure out when the world's going on, you already have an inheritance. You've been marked for it. You're being kept for it. Um, and uh, this is so important for us because insecurity is the constant whisper in your ear, I am not enough, I don't have enough. I am not enough and I don't have enough. And when you understand who you are in Jesus, you can tell that lie where to go. Uh, one of the really cool things about this text, we're almost done here, I love this. It's not just that you have an inheritance. I think Paul here is actually making a different, slightly different argument. He's actually arguing that you are an inheritance. You are an inheritance. The, the Father chose you. The Son redeemed you, brought you into the family, marked you for himself, and will bring you into the family. You are being kept as an inheritance for the Father, a gift to Jesus. This is the way the Old Testament talks about God's people, a prized possession. The most important thing in the Father's house. That's the way God looks at his people. That's the way he looks at you. In the midst of all your insecurity, wondering if you're going to pass that test, get into that club, get on these side of these people or not, remember, you are the Father's prized possession. Nothing matters to him more. Friends, there is such security in that. You've been redeemed by him, adopted into his family, marked out by him. You're his prized possession. Uh, an old pastor friend of mine used to tell this story of, uh, he grew up in rural Tennessee and in this town he was in, uh, there was this older man. He always dressed fairly poorly. Everyone thought he was uh, a sort of a slightly crazy older man. He rode the city buses around, the town buses, and uh, always seemed to forget where he was going. No one actually knew where he lived or if he had a home, but he was often on the bus, uh, Ask the bus driver, like, drop me off at the bank. And uh, the bus driver would invariably say, which bank? There's like seven in town. And he would say, any old bank will do. And when the guy died, uh, they found out he was telling the truth. Any old bank would do. Because he was like a millionaire and he had money in every single bank in town. In some ways, that's us. In Jesus, we have been lavished with his love. That's his language. We have so many good gifts in him. We've been forgiven. We've been promised a future. We've been given a grand plan. We have every reason to be secure. But we forget it, and we don't dress like it, and we don't act like it sometimes. But, but just like this man, you've got riches everywhere you go. You can be secure here, there, anywhere because of what Jesus has done and his great love for you. Let's pray. Great Lord Jesus, we ask you be kind to take this love and press it so deep into our hearts that it